Plato at the Googleplex by Rebecca Goldstein. One sentence summary. Plato at the Googleplex shows you how the ancient wisdom of Greek philosopher Plato from 2000 years ago still shapes our thinking today and can help us find answers to the big questions in life by relying on his timeless habits of striving for knowledge and reason in everything we do. My favorite quote from the author is, If we don't understand our tools, then there is a danger we will become the tool of our tools. We think of ourselves as Google's customers, but really, we're its products. Rebecca Goldstein Rebecca Goldstein has written 10 books. Some of them are fiction, some are short stories, some are non-fiction, like this one, which also happens to be her latest piece of writing. As you can guess from the title, it poses the question, what would Plato do and say if he were alive today? Would we think he's a lunatic or still learn from him? Does that mean philosophy has become useless? Questions upon questions, which the book, not quite coincidentally, answers with more questions. I'm a huge fan of Plato and Stoic philosophy here at 4-Minute Books, so I'm happy to share three lessons from Plato with you today. Here are my three big takeaways from Plato at the Googleplex. 1. Google can answer most questions, but not all of them. 2. No two people are the same, so neither should education be. 3. Plato came up with a definition of love that encompasses all human relationships. What would Plato teach you if he just rang your doorbell today? Here is an educated guess. Plato at the Googleplex, lesson 1. You can Google your way to answers to a lot of questions, but not all of them. This answers the question, what are some of the questions Google can't answer? What's your gut reaction to not knowing something? Sure, Google it. In a 2017 world, we have the entire knowledge of history in our pockets. And while Google is great for fact-checking, recipe reading and news updating, it has a tougher time answering some questions for us than others. For example, what about big questions which concern morality, ethics or highly debatable topics like the death penalty, abortion, genetic crops? There's no way one person can answer those in a single blog post. What's more, Google's biggest advantage is also one of its greatest weaknesses, the fact that it crowdsources information. For example, if you want answers about how to feed and take care of your horse, who would you rather go to? One trained, certified, experienced horse trainer or a crowd of 200,000 people, all of which know a little bit about horses? The truth is that the highest ranking answers to questions on Google might be solutions to problems that have worked for a lot of people, but it doesn't mean they'll work for all people. As great as Google's answers are, there's one thing you should never forget. To question them, like you do with all answers you would get elsewhere, too. Plato at the Googleplex, Lesson 2. Education should lay a solid foundation for each of us, but then must adapt to us as individuals. This answers the question, how does the modern information economy influence education? When do you think school stopped being useful for you? For me, I think it happened somewhere around 7th or 8th grade. After learning the rule of 3 to calculate percentages and being set up with basic English and Latin grammar, I would have been a lot better off if someone had given me a pen, told me to write, learn about whatever topic I like and hand me a business book. In Germany, if you finish high school, you'll have 12 to 13 years of conventional education. 
which for most people means that at some point they stop actually learning. Well, except for memorizing stuff. That's because after laying the groundwork of learning, education needs to adapt to our individual talents, skills and needs. As Plato put it by laying words into his character Socrates' mouth, every child is not the same. Hence, education cannot be the same for every child. Sadly, even today, few school systems do this. So for now, it means educating yourself, which is what you're doing right now and right here. Plato at the Googleplex, Lesson 3. Love is a prerequisite for all human relationships, if you define it like Plato does. This answers the question, what was Plato's view of love? Have you ever heard the term platonic love? It's used to describe a loving relationship between friends that doesn't involve sex or romance. Given the fact that he's given credit by name, Plato obviously had a thing or two to say about love. However, what he didn't want is to split it into two camps, like romantic versus platonic love. Instead, when Plato thought of love, he thought of love as all-encompassing. To him, it marked the base of all human relationships, just with varying degrees of intimacy. Love is present among friends, family members, spouses and communities, all the same. It's just the romantic, sensual part that's different. Plato explains this by thinking of love in stages. Yes, some of our relationships start based on our senses, desire and attraction to one another. But over time, he argues, love always advances from our senses to our rational faculties. You know how science often says lovers have to be best friends to last a lifetime? That's what this is about. Love can even extend beyond people. For example, you can be driven and motivated by a love for learning. I don't know if this will make you think of love in a new light, but I do know this. If we all made love the prerequisite for all our interactions with other people, the world would sure be a better place. Here's what I learned from Plato at the Googleplex by Rebecca Goldstein. Really, really cool idea for a book. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ryan Holiday, and Ryan Holiday does a similar thing where he takes Stoic philosophy and puts it in a modern context and finds modern examples of Stoic philosophy. And this is sort of taking that thought experiment to the next level where you say, if the Stoics were alive today, what kind of questions would they ask? So very cool idea, I think. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about lesson two and lesson three specifically. Um, I mean, the Google answers part makes sense, right? I mean, there are situations where you just need one expert to give you the information. And that's going to be way, way better than whatever Google will throw your way. Um, by the way, this is also a great approach to take if you publish a blog and if you want to get on Google. So uh, Ned Eliasson, he has a great blog uh, and he knows a lot about SEO. He talks about this. He says, if you can't write the best content on the web, if you can't answer the question in the best way possible, and again, this brings us back to in a way that helps most people, then don't even write anything. And so obviously what I've done with 4-Minute Books is a little different because I just have the keyword summary added to all the book titles. That means some summaries will be better than the rest that's out there and others won't. So some summaries make it to the front page and others don't. 
but in the other case where you let's say you're trying to tell the world how to make tea if you don't have the best tutorial on how to make tea and people google how to make tea you won't rank in the first result now obviously again there's different strokes for different folks but uh, in general you get the idea so you need to have a really good idea before you blog about a topic to rank on google because it does its job well it's just that it doesn't work for all cases and it doesn't work for um, all specific questions now second part uh, laying a foundation <laughs> I I would have said this if I hadn't put it in the summary I basically think after 7th or 8th grade school is done for I mean once you know how to calculate percentages and all the other stuff you calculate gets in math in any topic pretty much maybe except for history it goes way deeper and gets way more specific than you ever need to know it uh, and it's nothing you couldn't learn from an afternoon on Wikipedia so Really, I mean, imagine having it in seventh grade when you're 13, you get to decide, do you want to be a dancer? Do you want to do writing? And then you are forced to do that for, let's say, the next school year. So you can try a bunch of different things because you're not going to hit a home run the first time or not everyone at least. But imagine you had that freedom to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do this year. This is what I'm going to do next year. And you focus on one thing each time, some may business, some biology and so on. And you would just adapt it to the children. Uh, again, I'm a huge fan. I, I've said this before. Maybe you've heard it on another summary. I'm a huge fan of Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk. Uh, it's called Do Schools Kill Creativity, I think. And he has this great story of a woman who was very fidgety and couldn't sit still. And her mom took her to the doctor. This was the early 20th century. And, and the doctor talked to her mom and said, you know what? I got to talk to your mom outside. They went outside. And as soon as they the child was sitting on the chair and as soon as they left the room and the doctor turned the radio on the her daughter was on her feet and she was dancing and then the doctor said i don't think your child is sick i think she's a dancer and then she put her in a dance school and i think it's she her name is jillian hall or hard i don't know but she, point is she became a dancer she became part of the royal ballet she's done the musical cats i think uh, and phantom of the opera so basically this woman became super famous and a, a beacon of of the dancing world uh, and imagine her mom had a f would have considered or a doctor would have said she's got adhd and put her on medication and so that's all just because of a broken education system that can't work for everybody. So the obvious solution is if you can, if if you live in a country where that's possible, to either unschool your kids at that point, or to at least, and in Germany, for example, we have uh, school is enforced, so you have to send your kid to school up to a certain age to teach them on the side and teach them at home. And this is precisely what I'm gonna do when the time ever comes. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I definitely plan on schooling my kids either at home or at least after a certain age, giving them the extra education they need privately and at home or with teachers or whatever they want to buy in terms of books. I don't care because the school system as it is does not cut it. Lastly, the whole thing about love. I just want to say I really agree. Um, uh, I think the book, The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Hayden also talks about that, that lovers have to develop there's this passionate love which is about romance and sex and desire and all that stuff and there's um companionate love and that's the kind of love of best friends and war buddies and you know that kind of love and if 
if couples don't develop especially companionate love, they don't stand a chance when it comes to long term because passionate love wears out very quickly, like six months or the first year or so. Um, it it's it settles in a baseline level and then that's done. And I'm a pretty rational guy as it is, but with love, I've definitely seen this happen with me, with others, time and time again. They're super passionate in the beginning and then it wears out and then they realize there's not much connection left. So I would say think about it. That's all I can say. I don't want to force anything on you. Just think about what you think about love. Um, and yeah, maybe Google around for Plato a little bit. He might not be at the Googleplex right now, but he'll still be available to answer your questions. See you on the next one.